Welcome to Texas Rising, a show that explores the driving forces behind the financial phenomenon that is the Texas miracle. Join your hosts, business leaders and dads, Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman, as they bring you luminaries from across the great state of Texas to talk business, culture, public policy, and much more. And now, coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, this is Texas Rising. Well, welcome back to another episode of Texas Rising. I have really been looking forward to tonight's episode. In the words of Michael Scott, how the turntables have turned. And so <laughs> it's Ben was was kind enough to interview me here several episodes ago, and now it's uh, his time on the hot seat. But I, I think it's a great opportunity for my mom and Ben's mom, who are kind enough to listen every episode. It's kind of it's a good opportunity for them, at least, to get to know us a little better. And I'm I'm really excited to kind of to talk to Ben tonight about his past and his kind of all the the life experiences that have, have made him the man and, and leader he is today. So Ben, thanks for for taking the time to be on the hot seat. And I think we'll start out tonight with talk a little bit about growing up, what what home life was like for you, what that experience was like, and and you talk a lot about in the past about the Midwest, how the Midwest shaped kind of like your life at home and your young adolescence. Yeah, well, Jeff, thanks for making the time to interview me. This is going to be fun. So I grew up in the Midwest, as you mentioned, a small little town called Edina, Minnesota, right outside Minneapolis. Three brothers, I'm sorry, three three total siblings. So a brother and a sister and myself. I actually was born in California, though. My dad, he was an aerospace engineer with Northrop. And I think that's kind of where I got the first aviation bug. Eight days old, was at the rollout of the F-20 Tiger Shark, an airplane very few people have heard about. But my dad worked on the landing gear on that and the B-2. And I was stamped from an early age to be an aviator, I guess. And, uh, you know, what was interesting about that, my parents, you know, had three kids before they were, I think, 24 years old, three kids within 15 months. My brother and sister were twins. And they ended up in a one-bedroom apartment with those three kids in the middle of LA, away from family. And after about two years of that, decided they needed to move back to Minnesota to be near family. And so loaded up the small Toyota Celica and humped it back across the country to the land of their upbringing and where where my where my parents and, and grandparents lived. And it was really amazing. I mean, did not have hardship from a, a family standpoint, actually grew to be very close with a lot of my extended relatives. My grandparents all lived nearby. Uncles lived nearby. Aunts and uncles and great uncles and great aunts lived nearby. Lots of holidays and lots of great memories there. So yeah, pretty, pretty standard Midwestern American upbringing. What do you think, you know, you, so you, you mentioned having a lot of extended family nearby. How much of that do you think you carry into your your role as a father now and and wanting to is that is that something you'd like to have for for your boys and, and your children now or is it, you know in terms of kind of a, a broader family structure around? It was definitely very formative. I think spending time with my grandfather, he was a woodworker and was able to never graduated college, but able to make magnificent things from from what i remember he would go around to old construction sites and pull out all the scrap wood that uh, they had done for tearing down houses and he actually built us a, a two-story playhouse in the backyard you know a couple hundred square feet barn style i sat there when i was i don't know 10 or 12 years old at the cad machine he milled all the wood it was it was built to withstand a hurricane or in our case a tornado he knew how to do it right, but it was just a thing of beauty. And I still have the blocks that that he made us as growing up that that our kids use to this day to build things. Family is, is critical for, for my kids as well. You know, it's a little bit different situation, you know, after the military went to to a place far from from where my sisters and brothers were. My brother's still in the military. We still try to do Fourth of July with my sister every year and her six kids and my parents, they were just down here to spend a week with the kids. So getting that family time is really important. So a couple of weeks ago, you were sharing with me, and if you would talk a little bit about this experience, I just thought it was a neat story. And 
and and you shared uh, an essay contest that you were a part of in in high school and kind of talk about that essay essay contest who it was for what you talked about and and ultimately how how you did there i just think i just think it's a neat story and one that made me feel bad about myself as an adult <laughs> i don't even think i worked that hard now you know so yeah well it was it's interesting that was kind of the first foray into writing for me and i think writing has been a really important part of my life and how i identify and I, I was taking AP economics from a guy named Dan Marsh, who was kind of legendary in the Edina public schools. And he was one of the best economics teachers in Minnesota. And there was an annual contest that the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis put on. They put an essay question out there, usually with a picture, and then just solicit, I think it was 1500 word essays on the topic from students. And every year they would award you know, one or two people with the, with the top prize and you'd get, you know, some sort of savings bond and then an internship at the Minneapolis Fed for the summer. And most of us were seniors, high school seniors before a college experience. So I submitted an essay about the oil embargo of the 19th of 1973. And it was about inflation and price controls. And the, the picture was a picture of a, a guy in Minneapolis, a gas tank purveyor and it said, hey, sorry, out of gas. And it was all about price controls and inflation, which is actually interestingly very prescient for today's challenge with energy prices. But uh, yeah, long story short, I was fortunate to to win that essay contest. And I actually reread the essay about three months ago as we were at his energy crest. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of lessons we can learn from from young high school senior Ben Coleman yeah, as he's talking about that. <laughs> you know, high school was really formative for me. Also, one of the other teachers was a woman named Betsy Cussler. She was my senior literature teacher. And I remember getting high school essays ready. And I had my first drafts and, and brought them into Mrs. Cussler to review. And I was proud. I've gotten all A's in her class and all this stuff. And she just absolutely tore them apart. She was like, Ben, this is terrible. So you're not telling your story. This is anybody could write this. Like I literally left in tears. But it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it made me realize that writing is very personal. You have to evoke emotions and get people to to kind of see and, and feel what you're experiencing. And and from that, I actually shifted one of my senior essays to, to talk about my relationship with Calvin and Hobbes and how heartbroken I was in 1995 when Calvin and Hobbes went off the, the strip. And I think that was the first chance I had to really, okay, I, I can I can find a voice in writing and teachers like Mrs. Cussler who really pushed you to reach your full potential, even though you know your grades may have been good, they knew there was more deep within you that you could get. And I think a lot of us have had those experiences, but for me, those high school teachers who just never gave up and always always wanted to pull every bit of magic from us were, were pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. So, you know, you talk about good grades and, and being around teachers and influencers who can cause you to reach your full potential. You you leave high school and and obviously an underachiever go on to Northwestern, but at Northwestern you decided to uh, you know, take part in in ROTC. What made you make that decision and 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 why ROTC? So I'd always been obsessed with the Navy. Growing up, reading World War II histories, my grandfather, he was a World War II fighter pilot. My great uncle, he was an aviator in Vietnam, was shot down and spent five years in the Hino Hilton with the likes of Jim Stockdale and John McCain. Wow. So those stories of aviation infused our upbringing. And I'd always wanted to serve. I remember watching the movie Midway nearly every weekend growing up and just wishing I could be Admiral Nimitz one day leading our battle fleets into action against against the enemy. And so I had originally applied to the Naval Academy and uh, I was fortunate enough to get in. But when I visited, just realized it wasn't wasn't the right spot for me for a variety of reasons, one of which was I, I didn't think the academics were rigorous enough and the things that I was seeing at that welcome weekend, I was actually doing high school. And so I wanted a bit more of a challenge. Hmm. And I also wanted more of a civilian experience. I wanted to actually enjoy college and be in a place where I could be pushed outside of my desire to, to be a military officer. And, you know, outside the academy, I really had no, no desires. I, you know, I didn't ever think of applying to some of the more prestigious East Coast schools. Never thought I would have been qualified to go there. Applied to Georgetown and 
University of Washington in St. Louis. But I happened to also have a crush on a girl who was obsessed with Northwestern. And I was actually, I didn't like Northwestern because growing up, I'd also always read the sports page. And Northwestern was always the bottom of the heap of the Big Ten, whether it was football <laughs> or basketball. And I just could not imagine why anyone in their right mind would go to a school that had such terrible sports teams. But uh, but this young lady was very interested in Northwestern. And I was like, oh, well, if she's, if she's thinking about it, maybe I should think about it. Can't be that bad. Yeah, it can't be that bad. When I, when I dove deeper into it, I realized this was actually going to be a perfect fit because they had a program called mathematical methods in the social sciences that you'd match up with social science major. And I had always loved math and economics and was fortunate both Northwestern and that program and combined with the ROTC opportunity, realized this was the right place to go. So, you know, to end of 2000, hop in the car and, uh, and head down to Evanston, Illinois. So talk a little bit about your your experience as a ROTC cadet, but at the same time as, as a college student. Would you spend, I mean, summers and, and winter breaks kind of out in the fleet or, you know, kind of getting that that midshipman experience there? Or what was that life like for you? It was it was unique. You know, summers between freshman, sophomore, sophomore, junior, junior, senior, we'd spend 30 plus days out at sea with a ship. I also spent a summer in Atsui, Japan with a helicopter squadron. And then the first summer, you kind of do a, a mix and match of everything to get a sense of what's going on. And then on campus, we would have classes. And then once a week, we'd wear a uniform around campus. And, you know, it was, it was historically different in my freshman year and then in my sophomore year and beyond. And I say that because when I entered my sophomore year, uh, that's when 9-11 happened. And so Northwestern has a bit of a, a later start. And so I was actually at home in Edina when the, the Twin Towers were hit. And I had a little lawn mowing business that I was kind of closing down for the summer. And the, the two towers hit and went to Northwestern. And all of a sudden, the whole campus environment had shifted. You know, the military up to that point was not a very popular thing to do. Uh, and we were kind of the weirdos on campus. This was end of the 90s peace dividend and there were certainly those of us who wanted to serve, but we were kind of the oddities on campus. And then as soon as the nation's at war, we get all sorts of attention, good, bad, and otherwise. And in addition to ROTC, I was also heavily engaged in, in student government. And I remember in, in the run-up to the Iraq war in particular, there were a number of student Senate resolutions condemning the, the coming war. And... You know, as a as an ROTC student as well as a student senator, I kind of pulled all the strings that I had in my pocket to to change that, and we ended up getting the resolution that was condemning the war into one that was supporting our troops. And then the initial bill authors pulled the bill because they didn't want that getting out there. But we did a lot of other stuff on campus related to the war. We actually created a, a memorial for a number of the fallen Northwestern Wildcats in past wars. Had the university president come out there. And we're able to be kind of a, a representative of what was happening overseas on campus. You know, we were fortunate not to endure some of the protests that the Vietnam era ROTC students were subjected to, but there was still an undercurrent of aversion to military service among some of my peers uh, elsewhere. Again, most were very supportive and as with any college campus, there's going to be different views. And I actually found that to be very, very helpful. And I think was exposed to the beliefs that I, I, hadn't, I hadn't been exposed to before and was fortunate to build relationships and friendships with some of those folks who, who were different than myself. And when yeah. we didn't see eye to eye, we could actually have meaningful conversations and, and move forward together. So talk a little bit. You mentioned the student senate. Talk a little bit. I've heard you talk in the past. Talk a little bit more about kind of being fallen into the role of being an accidental rebel, whether it would be, mm -hmm. you know, you're you're the lone voice and lone vote uh, in a student Senate where the vote's going against you, but you kind of stand on principle and say, no, this this is what I think, and I'm willing to be the only one to cast an opposing vote, or, you know, just kind of, or, you know, any other circumstances, you know, growing up in high school and college, talk a little bit more about kind of being that accidental rebel. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. In middle school and high school, uh, I was very straight-laced. I was the guy who never swore, didn't go to any parties, didn't drink, didn't smoke, you know, avoided the the bad movies, all sorts of stuff. 
And in some way it was very, well, it was very tied to, to my religious upbringing and the things that I believed, but it was also because it was, it was what I was expected to do by the adults in my life. And I always felt a, a deep compulsion to follow what they were telling me to do. And in, in many ways that was rebellious in a sense, because almost no one else followed that edict. They actually went their own way, like teenagers are supposed to do and learn sure. and experimented sure. and I just refused to do that. And there were consequences to that, some good, some bad. But because of that, I had a very strong sense of what I believed. And was always willing to challenge those beliefs, but always was kind of rooted in, in that foundation. And so when I got to college, because I had spent a lot of my high school time involved in, in interesting conversations with people of different beliefs, because I was right of center, I think right of center individuals have a little more friction and have to be more willing to, to defend their views and, and they're going to come under attack far more. And so they can become very resilient in the face of, of opposition. And so Especially when I got a college campus, right? Exactly. And so coming to a college campus, even in 2002, 2003, you know, the, the vast majority of students are going to have a different political persuasion, but I knew what I believed and I was willing to stand up for those things. And in the student Senate, especially, I was on the uh, the wrong side, if you will, of more 65 to 1 votes than I think any other senator, at least when I was there. And while it certainly caused some eye rolls among some of the people who were who were running the Senate because, you know, I'd object to to things that was in no way, shape or form what the student Senate should have been spending their time on because we had no influence whatsoever. But it was interesting because I got a lot of comments on the sidelines kind of thanking me for being willing to to say something or stand up for something. And I was always very analytical. I remember one story. I know we have a, a mutual friend here in Dallas, Sol Benecourt. He was the the vice president of finance at the time at Northwestern and kind of ran the, the multi-million dollar allocation. And I was running college Republicans and we had been allocated less dollars than the college Democrats. And basically I created a consulting-like report doing analysis, number of student participants in each of the college Republicans and college Democrats engagements and found that the college Republicans were actually far more efficient with dollars, you know, on a per student per dollar spend and the speakers we were getting, we actually had more, more interest and were a better use of student dollars. And because of that persuasive conversation, we were able to actually double the amount of money the college Republicans got that year because we delivered every year and had really compelling speeches. So, you know, that was unusual at the time to come in with, you know, a, a deep analytical look at what that what that should be. And it was just a fun chance to, to kind of spread my wings and, and get involved in politics for the first time while also taking part in the broader campus experience. I think that's, I think that's great. That's, and as a matter of fact, anybody that can shame Sol Betancourt <laughs> and any kind of analytical filing is just, you know, that's fantastic. So help me understand a little bit. Though, first and foremost, let me just say this to your point about, you know, kind of being on the wrong side of 65 to, to one votes. To your credit, and you, you and I went through Leadership Dallas together. It was, it was a wonderful experience and opportunity. But one of the things that I was so, a lot of things that I've been incredibly impressed by by you with, but you know, one of the things that really kind of stands out is for all those that don't know, Leadership Dallas is is a leadership program run by the the Chamber of Commerce. And you go through different curriculum days to to learn about different things like education, transportation, healthcare, all that kind of stuff. And I can't remember, we were we were four or five curriculum days into the program. And I remember in a class discussion, you just stood up and said, Hey, listen. From the things that we study and the speakers that we bring in here, a lot of times what we do and say and talk about isn't isn't emblematic or, or isn't representative necessarily of all of the viewpoints in this class. And a lot of times I think it's important that we be truly be inclusive of, of everyone in here and, and diversity of thoughts a really important thing. And, and really just kind of pointed out how there was a lot of viewpoints that we weren't or the program wasn't willing to talk about because it may have not fallen or fit in with fit with a certain narrative that that folks were were interested in. And I just thought in a in a cohort of, you know, whatever we had 70 or 80 people of, you know, kind of type A leaders around the Metroplex, I thought that was an incredibly brave thing to stand up and and say when a lot of people just would have kind of dismissed it and and moved on. But I just thought it was a really 
great example of you being willing to stand up for for what you believe in and and uh, put that out on the table. So kudos to you. I thought that was a really great example of that. Well, I appreciate that. I you know as I've gotten older, I tend to be a more constructive contrarian than than others, and I find myself even when I'm in groups that I'm more aligned with. I'll kind of invariably take the other side as well. So if there's a, a right of center group that I'm engaged with and they're saying things that, you know, don't sound right to me, I'll actually raise the more centrist or left of center viewpoint. Like, hey guys, you're, you're actually missing this part as well. I think I need to get better at that because I kind of make enemies of everybody to some extent, but I do like to get to the, the truth of things. And I just like to understand the world. And there are a lot of perspectives that humans tend to just assume they go along with the crowd on and they have, they're busy, they don't have time to do it. But I can't help but to say, you know what, there's also something else that we should think about. What are the, what are the first principles that, that we're really talking about here? Are we consistent or not? If we're inconsistent, should we be consistent? And can we think about other people who might have a different view? That, that diversity of thought and true liberalism is something that's always been very important to me. And it, you know, it really is rooted in this desire to, to have freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and explore off possible viewpoints because the world's a really weird place. And it's also a fascinating place. And unless we're willing to engage with people who have different views, we're not going to learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. All right. So, so you were, you were a, obviously an active part of the student senate there. T- talk a little bit about was it, was it that experience? I know you're, have always had kind of a, a passion for politics. Was that that experience with the student senate? Was that just kind of manifestation of that, or was it really something that passion really kind of really got ignited with that opportunity? I mean, I'd always been a politically oriented person. I remember in '92, fifth grade, we had an election in class, and it was you know Clinton and the senior Bush and uh, and Ross Perot. And I was one of 30 members of my fifth grade class to vote for Ross Perot in that election, mostly because my parents voted for Perot. But I'd always I'd always followed the elections pretty closely, you know, especially through 2000. And I just thought, hey, if, if you want to make a difference, you have to go into government. And so when I was in Northwestern, I was like, well, the closest I can get to government is through the student senate. And then the next thing was, you know, running for executive board of my fraternity and and be involved at the policy making level of those organizations. And, you know, I worked for a congressman for one of my summers when I was done with my mission with summer cruise, a guy named Mark Kirk, who ended up becoming a senator from Illinois, one of the few Republicans get elected there, and then ran a a Pyrrhic <laughs> state rep campaign for for a gentleman uh, who was running against a longtime incumbent Democrat. And we lost like 80-20. It wasn't even close. But I, I had to scratch that itch and get a sense of what politics was really like. And this was before I had kind of discovered how difficult it is to make headway in politics and the the joys of entrepreneurship and the and the private sector. But throughout college, it was it was front and center for me. And I think my plan initially was either stay in the military forever or as soon as you get out of the military, jump into politics in some way, shape or form. And is that something, obviously, you've been out of the military for, for several years now. Is that something you'd still like to do one day or is that is that a passion you still have? I mean, I'm open to it. I'm definitely passionate about certain policies. And I think there is a pathway to have impact in government. I'm less optimistic that you can have the type of impact you need to have unless you're willing to put in 30 or 40 years, which is almost the same as any career. Like you really have to to, to double down and, and make that make that your focus. We'll see we'll see if the right opportunity comes along. You know, I, I had considered running for Congress a couple of years ago. As you look at how the Texas legislature has created the new congressional districts, it's very hard for an outsider of either party or even within parties to to win, you know, all the districts are plus 20, plus 25 right now on one side or the other. And so you have to wait till an incumbent passes on. You know, there's there's could be a potential opportunity in the state house at some point. I was less enthusiastic about state politics, not because it's less important. I think it's actually more important, but my interest and remit of issues tended to be more national. But actually, as I've gotten to Texas, I've realized how important state and local government is. And so at some point down the line, you know, we'll see if we'll see if there's an opportunity to serve serve in that capacity. But 
you know, as I see where the biggest change makers and opportunities are in our society, the ones that have shaped our culture most are business leaders um, and to a lesser extent, nonprofit leaders. But you look at whether it's energy companies or tech companies or transportation companies. Yes, government sets the framework, but it's those who go and execute, those who are in the arena, who face the market head on, who actually change our day to day and decade to decade experience. And I think that's why I've kind of shifted my focus to, to running companies and being an entrepreneur at this point. I'll always have an issue in politics. I do love supporting the right people and certainly I'm engaged in a number of levels, but for right now, uh, not not really on the pathway to running. Sure, sure. So so you leave Northwestern, you leave the student senate. Walk us through kind of your your experience with the fleet. So did you immediately go to flight school? What was that like? I can only imagine being a young 21, 22, 22-year-old second lieutenant and, you know, learning to fly fighter jets has has got to be a pretty kick-ass way to spend your early 20s. It is. And as with everything, I, I was a bit unusual. I think it's important to start the story the year before I graduated. So again, I had always wanted to be a, be a pilot. And while I was doing other things at Northwestern, my my main focus was the the naval training. And I was fortunate to be selected as the battalion commander my last year, which is kind of the highest ranking midshipman. Uh, and we we also got a new commanding officer and a guy by the name of, of Dan Moore. And I think you had the chance to meet Dan a couple of months ago at an event I hosted. But he was, he was also a, a former F-18 pilot. I had a very unusual approach to education. So one of the roles of the commanding officer of an ROTC unit is to teach the seniors in a course called Leadership and Ethics. And it's a, a big book put out by the Naval Academy. And he came into class the first day. And up to that point in my life and career, I had been straight-laced, never deviate from, from the, the orders you're given, boots polished, show up on time kind of guy. And Dan takes the book and literally says, team, we're not going to use this. He dumps it in the trash can and says, I built my own leadership ethics syllabus. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you can't do that. Like the Navy said, you're going to do this book. You have to do that book. What are you doing? But that class turned out to be one of the most transformative experiences I've ever had because Dan took the, the curriculum he had learned from Admiral Jim Stockdale at the War College and made it relevant to 21 and 22 year olds. So for those who don't know, and I alluded to Admiral Stockdale previously, he was a Medal of Honor winner, basically brought the society of Vietnam POWs through five, seven years of absolute hell out the other side with zero of the 550 of them coming down with PTSD because he was able to build a society in the midst of that, of that chaos. And he was also the vice presidential candidate for Ross Perot senior back in 92, but, but he had some really unique things on leadership. And Dan also introduced me to a philosopher, military philosopher and officer called John Boyd, who was the, the father of called maneuver warfare, the father of modern fighter tactics, basically quantified a lot of the qualitative stuff that fighter pilots had been doing for decades, but said, hey, we can put mathematical numbers to this and it's still used across the world for, for how, you, how you fight aircraft. So I had this unique experience in my senior year and honestly left that as kind of a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, kind of a rebel who wanted to go in and disrupt the military. When I got to Pensacola in July of 2004, right after graduation, I immediately kind of ran right into the, the Navy bureaucracy. So for decades, the Navy has had a very difficult time managing the flow of student pilots. The Air Force can get folks through in nine to 12 months. The Navy, it took me nine months just to start. And I was just talking to a friend of mine who's actually an intern at our company now. He just left Naval Aviation. And 20 years later, they are still have a backup of nine to 12 months for student aviators. So anyway, wow. most of my peers were thrilled to be in Pensacola, to have a paycheck, to not have to work, go to the beach, you know, go to the Floribama every weekend and hang out. And I was tearing my hair out because I think in retrospect, I had the wrong approach here, but I just wanted to do something. I wanted to get in the fight. You know, we had been in Iraq and Afghanistan for three years at that point. I had volunteered to go work at the Pentagon to do X, Y, or Z, and they just would not let me do it. So cooled my heels for a while, kind of brooding, ended up working for Habitat for Humanity in my off time, but just really wanted to get in the fight. And I, I loved the aviation part. But some of the duty stations the Navy had us in, 
you know, were a little bit challenging for type A kind of early 20 folks who wanted to get out and and make an impact. So I went to uh, went to Meridian, Mississippi, spent about 15 months there doing jet training, got qualified as a carrier pilot, and then went out to Lemoore, California to to fly Super Hornets and was when I got done with that, immediately deployed to the Western Pacific to do some interesting things out there. And yeah, flight school was 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 very challenging. There was some other personal stuff going on that uh, that made it even more so. But as with everything in life, you know, the hardships are what make us who we are, and they just build up endurance for the challenges to come. Sure. So, Doug, you mentioned, by the way, I think that's going to be the title of this episode: "Wolf and and Sheep's Clothing." Um, <laughs> I love it. So you, so you, you enter the fleet, enter the Navy as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Talk about, I mean, the the bureaucracy of mm-hmm. of the United States military is really kind of second to none. You know, taking on the if if you're kind of entering the fleet looking to potentially disrupt and and bring some innovation. The naval aviation and, and just the military in general. Talk a little bit about what it's like to run smack dab into that bureaucracy, right? And kind of it's that it very much has a a life and heartbeat of its own. What was what was that like? Was it was it invigorating? Was it frustrating? What was it? What was your experience there? And what did what did you learn from it? Yeah, it was it was mostly frustrating uh, and combined with exhilarating and. I think it really comes down to what we were doing in combat and what happened beyond it. So if you look at the, the macro level, you know, John Boyd had this philosophy, this this theory called observe, orient, decide, and act. Many business people have heard this as the OODA loop. And the faster you can get inside the observe, orient, decide, and act loop of your adversary, you know, you'll win. It applies to dogfighting. It applies to nation-state warfare. And so I really took this approach of observe and orient in my first six years of the military, two years of flight school, then four years of frontline combat squad, just to understand what was happening, figure out where the opportunities were to make changes. And from the get-go in the squadron, there were lots of opportunities to make changes. So by the time I got in the fight, we deployed to Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010, we had been there for, I don't know, eight years at that point. Not a lot of progress had been made. And one of the things I did in the lead up to that was really try to understand what we were getting ourselves into, what we we're going to fly over. So I read some of the contemporary books like Three Cups of Tea, which you know you can debate whether or not it's an accurate depiction. I had read some of David Kilcullen's books about anti- counterinsurgency. He was kind of a leading light in the military counterinsurgency network about what he had seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then I read a really influential book called Caravans by James Michener, and it was a historical fictionalized account of what Afghanistan was in the mid-1800s, but it was very prescient because there's a reason why Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. And before I flew my first combat mission, I kind of had those stories and things in my mind as I flew over the desolate country of Afghanistan. And as I was there and I saw what we were getting ourselves involved in, I realized that there is a very different war happening than what was being reported back at home at this time. And while while the home front was getting news of some challenges, you know, every time a new commander would get on board, every time we'd have a new president, new SecDef, you know, it was a promise of better things to come. We've made immense progress that this year is the turning point and things will change in Afghanistan and Iraq. And what I saw from the air was nowhere close to reaching that. I did 32 combat missions. Most of those were doing route clearance and close air support for troops on the ground who were moving from one part of the country to the other. But there were a couple of stories that really stick out to me that kind of indicated that the challenges we were facing there. One was on a, on a border town of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And we, we came overhead and immediately checked in, put our, our sensors onto the ground and saw a firefight break out between a group of tanks that were moving in on a village and the villagers who were, you know, shooting back. And so we get on the horn and ask the, ask the guy on the ground, hey, what's going on? How can we help? He said, nope, just sit back. We're all safe. This is just the Afghan National Army moving in to consolidate a position against one of their, their local civilian people. It wasn't the Taliban, wasn't, you know, Al-Qaeda. It was just them taking over this city. And so we watched for half an hour as the ANA moved in 
and did what they were doing. And I was like, are these really the guys that, that we're supporting? So came back from that mission and we dropped a couple bombs in a couple places that may or may not have had an impact. But the last mission I had was working with a bunch of Brits and there was a convoy of Brit tanks that were going down the road and all of a sudden IED explodes. And, you know, we have our, our sensors on the, on the IED explosion, talking to the guy who was in the explosion itself. Fortunately, all of the Brits were okay. And interesting enough, just in the way the British are, they actually asked if we were okay and apologized that their feed had gone blank because of the explosion. <laughs> I'm like, dude, we're safe. It's okay. Like, it's okay. <laughs> we're here to support you. Don't worry about our feed going out. But anyway, that they knew where the they knew who the perpetrator was, but the perpetrator had run into a building, and as soon as he ran to the building, literally the building exploded with people. Not exploded. The people ran out from all all places, women, children, etc. And our adversary knew what it took to hide their people to, to be captured. All you had to do was run into another building, hide yourself among civilians, and you would get away with whatever you had just done. And this was this was countered with on our way home from Afghanistan, the commander of the air group in 06, a captain type, brought us all together in the forecastle, which is the front of the ship. We kind of celebrated our eight months at sea and he listed off, hey, we had a 99% sortie completion rate, you know, 100% of combat effective missions. We dropped 32,000 pounds of ordnance. And as we left that meeting, I couldn't help but think, I guarantee you this is the exact same speech that's been given every single time over the past eight years that a carrier has left the area of operations. And it's the same speech that will be given for the next X number of years that we're in Afghanistan. And we were so focused on the metrics and the numbers of things that we had done, we willfully ignored or chose not to engage at what was actually happening on the ground and if we were being successful or not in Afghanistan. And ultimately, 11 years after I left Afghanistan, we pulled out pretty ignominiously and the Taliban now have control of the country that so many Americans spent a better part of their 20s and 30s trying to quell and defend. And so that was, that was very, very enlightening for me. And I think following that experience, I realized something had to be done. Didn't know what it had to be, but I was willing to kind of put my career on the line to do something meaningful. So appreciate you sharing that, Ben. Tell me, what's it like as someone who risked his life, you know, in, in the skies of Afghanistan? How does that how does that make you feel as someone who served there that, you know, our our pullout and then with the Taliban back in control of Afghanistan? Does that does that make you feel one way or the other? It's ambiguous. I think that's the term that I apply to Afghanistan in general. And just to be clear, aviators, especially fixed-wing aviators like us, we were probably the safest people in Afghanistan. Not once was I ever threatened with a surface-to-air missile. We provided support for guys on the ground who were in harm's way every day, but we were always safe. So I was very thankful that we had, we had air superiority there. After that experience, I really believed that we needed to pull out. And I knew that any pullout would be catastrophic. And yet, in my estimation, it was a cost that we had to bear because X number of generations more of American men and women over there was not going to solve the problem. And so while it was honestly a little bit traumatic to watch how it unfolded a year ago, and I think a lot of my peers have a different opinion on me on this, I think it was necessary to pull out. And the end state is just an absolute tragedy in terms of the Taliban taking over, we've kind of lost the bubble on it in terms of how our news media is covering it. But, you know, catastrophic collapse of, of women and human rights there. Food stores are down. Girls can't go to school anymore. It's back to where it was pre-invasion in 2001. And for the people of Afghanistan, you know, the society is back to where it was 25 years ago. For the billions and hundreds of billions of dollars we spent, the corruption and graft and just terrible things that happened in our name or others. I guess for a couple of years, it provided some some safety and security for the folks there, but it's all gone. And it's a shame that it had to happen that way. So I'm glad, we, I'm glad we're not there anymore. I'm still heartbroken and ashamed at how we left it. And I think it points to the fact that there's absolutely no accountability 
or senior leadership in the U.S. military. There was a, there was a phrase that I don't know who said it, but he said that a uh, private who loses his rifle will be punished more than a general who loses a war. And I think that's been kind of the watchword of of Afghanistan and Iraq. And we've been seeing to this day with, with the Navy, you know, the, the USS Bonham Richard, which about three or four years ago was set ablaze. There was, they pinned it on a single, a sailor, a young 21 year old man who had tried to raise the alarm previously. And fortunately he went through the justice system and was exonerated. But instead of the Navy owning up to their massive failures up and down the chain of command, the sailor was the one who took the fall and his life and career is now ruined. And yet many of the people who are responsible for, for that catastrophe because of poor shipyard maintenance, which is endemic in the Navy, uh, have not been punished for that. And so I think this just shows some challenges that we have as, a, as, a, as an institution. And I was at a conference this week, which gets into the innovation stuff. There's a group I built called the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, which celebrated its 10th anniversary this year which is remarkable, still around and stronger than ever. But I was talking to a fellow Navy veteran and he asked, you know, is the Navy GE? And what by that he meant that in the mid nineties, GE under Jack Welsh was the preeminent symbol of American capitalism, the best company to work for. It had phenomenal leadership programs. It was the place to be. And 25 years later, it's a shell of what it once was. And so he couldn't help but ask, is the Navy GE? We just don't know it yet. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but the fact that I don't know is concerning. What was your response to him when he asked? I said, that's a really apt analogy. And I would bet we are. And what was interesting is at that, that same conference, I met a gentleman who was at the, uh, the Naval Postgraduate School, and he was kind of in their, their innovation center. And part of his remit was to look at interesting ways of changing Navy culture. And he'd put together a one-page document that had outlined over the past 10 years, headlines and statistics outlining the challenges the Navy's had with personnel, with ship collisions, with culture, with cheating scandals. And when he created that, and the reason he created it was say, how, how can we fix this? Here's some solutions with another, a bunch of captains. He was basically brought in by the head of the Naval Postgraduate School and excoriated for airing dirty laundry, even though it was all publicly available things and was asked to depart that institution recently under a cloud for basically showcasing what the reality of the situation was. And all of these things is really what caused me in 2011 to kind of take a step forward and say, we need to do something about this. And it's time some junior officers stood up and, and, uh, and made a difference. You talk, you talk a lot about kind of the the lessons and takeaways from your time in the Navy. You have you've talked in the past a lot about the importance of of mentors and mentorship mm -hmm. in your life. Can you talk about who you learned some of these lessons from and kind of the importance of some of these mentors, not just in in your time in the Navy, but also in, in your time outside the service as well? Yeah, I think there's a number in the Navy in particular, Dan Moore, obviously, I think he was, he was the guy who set me on this path to be a disruptive influence in a positive way and start some really powerful movements that have, that have shaken the core of national security and kind of pushed us in a more innovative view. On the flip side, though, you know, I'll say there, there have been some institutionalists, a guy named uh, Admiral Bill Gortney, you know, he was very much a guy who had spent his entire entire career in the Navy. He brought me on as his speechwriter and then his his personal aide for the last tour that I had. And he and I had different opinions on where the Navy should go and what it took to, to push in the 21st century. But he was also very open to the thoughts of junior officers, which was a surprise to many of his of his staff members. But he he kind of took me under his wing and kind of showed me what it was like to be a very senior leader and the very difficult decisions that they had to make with incomplete information, with insufficient resources, with congressional pressure, with all sorts of other pressures. And I came to deeply respect the decisions he had to make, his ability to manipulate and move the bureaucracy in one direction or another. And so even though he and I had different views, you know, our willingness and ability to come together, I learned an immense amount from him. Uh, there were other folks like Admiral Terry Kraft, who was the, the commander of Navy Warfare Development Command 
you know, after I left Afghanistan, I wrote a very intemperate article called The Military Needs More Disruptive Thinkers, which became one of the most popular and most read articles of 2012 in the military circles. Pissed a lot of people off, made some people really happy. Admiral Kraft, one of the guys said, hey, Ben, put your money where your mouth is. Come, come work for me and build a group of disruptive junior officers to put new technology on ships. And he took a real step forward and said, you know what, I'm going to put my career on the line to bet on some junior officers. And he had the top cover from the chief naval operations at the time, but he took a big risk on us. And he helped navigate the bureaucracy, got us funding uh, and said, do what you guys do. You know, don't insult too many people, use the right language, but like go forth. If you have an idea, bring it to me and I will support you wholeheartedly. And uh, he was pretty critical instrumental in doing that. A guy named Deke Slayton, who was a Navy captain off the off the Admiral's track, but again, one of these other disruptive thinkers who had pushed the envelope in his career, he was really helpful as I was a young junior officer thinking about, okay, you see, you wrote this article, Ben, good on you, but now let's think about strategically translating that into actual action. And then finally, folks like uh, Guy Snodgrass, who I just had lunch with this last week, you know, he was a Navy commander and had recognized that there was an immense flight of talent from the military, especially naval aviators, to the civilian world and wanted to understand it. So he recruited me and we built a off-the-books retention survey to understand what was driving people to leave the service and gave admirals and the fleet insights that they wouldn't have gotten elsewhere because the questions they were asking were very boring and anodyne and almost created to get the answers they wanted. But as we asked the questions, do you, do you trust your leadership? Do you want to be an admiral? Do you want to stay in the service? You know, all this X, Y, or Z uncovered some really challenging things and delivered 300 pages of incendiary comments to the chief of naval personnel wow. that while we had promised to release publicly after reading them, chose not to because of what that would have done. But we're giving an insight to senior leaders into what the fleet actually believed. And there was some good that came of it. So I, I just credit Guy for taking action and doing something productive while in the service within the bounds of what could be done, but not sitting idly by while the ships burned and tried to take action. And for me, I think the key lessons are don't be afraid of, of stepping up and doing something and finding allies and communicating in a way that brings people into the tent, but also pushes people in new directions. And then finally, you never know how relationships you build early in your career will come back around to help later on. Uh, as an example, one of the, the members who was part of the Chief Naval Operations Rapid Innovation Cell was a young surface warfare officer in my last year. I knew him a little bit, but not that well. He did a little bit entering and hadn't heard from him in eight years. And all of a sudden, I had a call from him two weeks ago because he saw what we were building at my current company, and it happens to closely align with what their company does now. And because of that trust we had built up previously, his knowledge that I was one of those guys who would do it any, whatever it took to get things done, he's like, okay, I can trust you. Let's build a relationship now and see how we can build a partnership. So those, those investments in relationships pay off the more you, you put forward over time. You know, speaking of, of relationships, I think one of the great relationships that, that greatest relationship that you probably would talk about from your time in the Navy, you met a young lady. Uh, while in, in the last couple of years of, of your ser naval service, talk about who she was and, and kind of talk about meeting your wife, Jamie, and, and what, what that experience was like and, and how that all came to pass. Totally. Well, and this, this, this really goes into that, that last commentary on keeping up good relationships with people and not knowing how that's going to, that's going to pay off. So I was about 30 years old, about to leave San Diego after my instructor tour at Miramar. And I was introduced to a young lady named Jamie who was in Austin, Texas by my ex-girlfriend. And we had had a, a, a very strong relationship in college, but that fell away. There was a lot of heartache and heartbreak after that. But because of the way that we had remained friends throughout that, there was enough trust that eight years later, Sarah was willing to introduce me to Jamie. So I flew up to met, meet Jamie at the Austin airport in F-18, thanks to the taxpayers, had his, had his training mission that I was able to, to purloin and actually convince that's my... How you, that's how you meet a young lady. You exactly. roll up in F-18. That is fantastic. Well, it was interesting too, because up to that point, the, the Marine Corps was about to prohibit 
F-18s from flying more than one leg away from San Diego because they were having a lot of maintenance issues. And I walked into my executive officer and said, hey, sir, I want to do a cross country to Austin. It's two legs. I'm going to take one of our students. He's like, well, I know, you know, Ben, we have this main screen. I was like, sir, it's a chance to meet Miss Texas. And he's like, okay, you're done. There you go. He signed off, made it happen. <laughs> and, uh, and one thing led to another. But Jamie and I met at the tarmac at in Austin. And eight months later, we were married. And we just celebrated 10 years of wedded bliss here last week or two weeks ago. So it's been a whirlwind ride and three kids, a couple states, and it's just been, it's been magical. So you know, stay on the good graces of as many people as possible. You don't know, you don't know what's going to happen down the line. That's that. So first of all, congratulations on, on 10 years. That's, that's outstanding. It's a wonderful achievement, accomplishment. Um, so when she met you on the tarmac, had you all been talking before or was it just a kind of a cold, cold meet or how'd that work? We had had a couple of email exchanges. Uh, she was pretty reluctant to meet me because she had just come back from a couple of years in Hawaii and had no interest in a long distance relationship with a, with a military guy. But she's very gracious. And because, you know, at least there was a, a cover story about me introducing a student or bringing a student on board, she wanted to be a good hostess. And we had our, we had a, an evening at the Broken Spoke that that evening a little two-stepping yeah um, yep but yeah so that was that was great and you know we had a common common love of policy and politics and just great food and wine and hanging out so it was it was beautiful that's awesome that's awesome so so you transition out of the military and talk a little bit about kind of the the career transitions that you've had because they, they have always seemed to me or, or have always struck me as very purposeful um, and, and, and in terms, so talk a little bit about that. So you transitioned out of the military, you went to a small school in Northern California. I can't remember if they're still accredited, uh, Stanford, they have a, what it's they have called? a tree, yeah, they have a tree. A tree, something tree about a tree yeah. there, but yeah. yeah. So, so talk a little bit about that. Well, it's funny you mentioned purposeful because I think one of my favorite weight, but why images is straight line but it's a squiggle. Like life is, you just don't know where it's going to happen. And, you know, I'd always wanted to go back to school. I, I've always loved academics. I love education. You probably saw some of that in the commentary on our, our education podcasts. But the naval aviation at that time, there was no path but to get a graduate degree and still stay on the golden path. And so I knew I had to get out. And I wanted to try my hand in the civilian world too. I realized that my dreams of being Admiral Nimitz were not going to come to fruition. I had done too many disruptive, non-traditional things in my career. And honestly, I didn't have the performance reviews necessary to, uh, to make it to those, those higher levels as much as I loved flying. So went to Stanford. And honestly, when I got there, I thought, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got this suitcase. I was the military innovation guy. I've been talking to startups. Yeah, I got this suitcase. And I kind of ran right into a wall when I got there because there were folks three, four, five years younger than me who had done just absolutely incredible things with their lives. And many of whom knew what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I did not know what I wanted to be and really struggled for, for two years. I loved the experience. I made fantastic friends. I loved the classes, but what did not have a clear focus on what I wanted to do afterwards. And I ended up going into consulting at, at a very good firm, which I learned a ton at, but it was a little bit of a deviation from what I had anticipated myself doing. I remember the the last week of class, you know, you'd go, we'd have all these parties and I was sitting there and, and a woman I I barely knew, I was friendly with, but I barely knew. She kind of came up to me and said, hey, Ben, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm going to go to McKinsey. It'll, it'll be great. She's like, she just looked at me and like shook her head in dismay. It's like, your your talent is so wasted there. And I was like kind of insulted. I was like, this there's a reason I'm going there. Like I need to get expertise. I want to try something. But I think she saw something within me that like I've always had the desire to build something from scratch, to be an entrepreneur, to push the envelope. And at GSB, I was the guy who was known as the, the person who would bring people together to have hard conversations. You know, I ran Adam Smith Society, which was a, a right of center organization, but would have debates on both sides, you know, was kind of cohesive glue after the chaos of the Trump election, the Stanford campus, to bring people in conversation with each other. And my, my viewpoints were very strong and principled, but people knew that I could always 
be someone to rely upon to have a, an honest to goodness conversation on and that we would have a good faith curiosity based discussion. And so I think people had recognized that. And so when I when I when I went to consulting, I explored a lot of different avenues and I learned an immense amount and I, I met some really fantastic people, but there was something that just wasn't right. And in the latter part of my experience there, I, I'm such a, I'm a very head focused person. I'm analyze everything and I see the pathways and like, I look at the numbers and I pursue it, but my body was literally rejecting what my head was saying. Emotional breakdowns, heavy weight loss, things happening in the family life that I was not proud of because my head was in a place that my heart and soul were not in. And I think adding in the chaos of August 2021 with the pull in Iraq or pull of Afghanistan and a number of repressed thoughts and feelings that were kind of bubbling up to the surface, I knew something had to change in my in my professional life and ultimately pulled the trigger earlier this year after, again, an immense four years of learning. But to some extent, we're all put on this earth for a purpose. And if we are deviating from that purpose, I think your body tells you that and you have to learn to listen to it if you're going to if you're going to kind of realize what you're put on earth to do. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so you 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 left McKinsey. Talk, talk, tell us what you're doing now. We you and I have talked about it in the past. I, I think it sounds fascinating. Tell listeners about what you're doing now and, and kind of what you hope to grow to be. Yeah. So eight months ago, I took over an early stage startup, 15 person startup called at the time Dash Systems. And now it's called Farcast, which is an allusion to another area we haven't talked about my love for for science fiction. But Farcast is hoping to transform logistics. And what we say is bring everyone within reach and get supplies to people in the impossible mile. You know, there's a lot of conversation around drones and on many systems now. Well, we think there's an intermediate opportunity that doesn't have the regulatory burdens, and that's using manned cargo planes, but using airdrops, precision airdrops, to drop cargo into these difficult locations. We actually went out to Puerto Rico two weeks ago now after the hurricane, and we were able to use our technology and deliver 34 waterproof purification systems to remote villages that didn't have access to these supplies, otherwise via the air, via traditional cargo planes. And we're hoping that this will be the next iteration in, in logistics technology, helping out developed economies, I'm sorry, developing economies, India, Africa, as well as potentially disrupting the middle mile cargo logistics here in the, in the U.S., working with a couple large feeder operations today to see if we can make their fleets more efficient and, and drive better service delivery for folks. But it's been, it's been a trial by fire. I think the best way to learn is by doing. And what I've been telling people is, you know, my first two months at McKinsey, I learned more than two years at a fantastic business school. And my first four months at Farcast, I learned more than four years at McKinsey. Because when you're responsible for employees, for culture, for customers, for pricing, for strategy, for investor management, for cap table management, for fundraising, like you're going to learn so much beyond just the book. And we've made mistakes. We've had to recover from mistakes. We've had to hire people. We've had to fire people. We've had to deal with unusual founder situation. We've had fantastic investors, but figuring out how to navigate that relationship in an uncertain environment, probably one of the biggest downturns in our lifetimes about to hit. What do we do with runway? These are all very difficult decisions. And yet I feel deeply at peace with where I'm at right now. And there's no guarantee this works. As with any startup, it's a high-risk proposition. And in the past, if I didn't know what was happening five years in the future, I would be pretty, pretty nervous. Here, I don't know what's too, I don't know what the end of the year is going to bring. And I'm just like, we're going to make it happen one or the other. Like you just, you can't help but want to do that. And so it feels good to be in a spot where I can take all my lessons learned, apply them in a cultural context, but also be kind of mind, body, and soul aligned on, on what I'm supposed to be doing right now with my life. Yeah, that's terrific. So before we close out, kind of bringing it full circle, you talked uh, in the beginning about growing up and, and the importance of faith on you as a young man growing up and in and, and your family life. Talk about your your 
path to faith and how faith impacts you as as a husband and father and and business leader today yeah i mean i i grew up in a christian home and was very serious about it uh, and as with many faith journeys gone through ebbs and ebbs and flows i think i i hit a, a peak in college things were hitting on all cylinders and it was critically important to who i was who i am and then within a couple of years it was at its nadir it was there were some very dark moments you know i never stopped going to church i never stopped like fundamentally believing but there was a lot of questioning and i think all of us you know the fairy tale always ends at some point with tragedy in life or hardship and that's where we grow that's where we learn the most uh, and you know meeting jamie who's a very committed christian you know, I think that helped to to rebolster that and rekindle some of the the elements that have been lost, and especially having kids now. You know, I realize how important one faith is in general to the human experience, but in particular, how Christianity and the tenets that it it proclaims about community and family and and you know God and Christ and redemption and mercy, like these are so tied into the human experience that. It's critical for me moving forward to just live and thrive. And I think providing my children with a foundation of of those beliefs. I mean, to me, in the past 10 years, just understanding what what mercy and grace and redemption really means is powerful because there are many forces in our society, whether it's cancel culture or other, where one strike and you're out. There's no possible way to to come back from that. And all of us are flawed creatures. We need people to help pick us up when we've made mistakes, when we've hurt other people. And the the idea of, of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, like that is just so meta when it talks about the whole human experience. And for me, that's become even more and more important as my kids kind of become of age where they're starting to learn what's moral, what's not moral. And you know, even outside of the religious tenets, like I've found going to church every Sunday in a vibrant, large church with multi-generations, you know, new babies all the way to 90 plus year old people. Like this is human community. Like we mm-hmm. were born to be social creatures. There are very few institutions outside of religion in American society that provides you with a consistent experience of people of all types of all stages in life, wealthy, poor, different social classes, different educational backgrounds, like, and all coming together on a unified belief system. I mean, there's something really powerful about that, whether it's in a Christian church or a Mormon church or a Jewish tradition or or an Islamic church, like there's something powerful about religion and that community building that's outside the government that I think is really important in this day and age. So it's something that I'm still growing in. I struggle every day with it. I have questions, but it's it's like more foundational and deeper than ever before. And I can't help but see all of my professional activities through that lens is, you know, there's a reason why human flourishing for me is the main priority. Religion is a critical part of that. Free markets, capitalism, another part of that. Those two things have to combine, though, to help people realize their full potential. And there's an undergirding of religious belief that kind of provides that that movement forward. Man, so so I totally agree with you on on your point about fellowship in general. And I think, unfortunately, just the past couple of years, you know, 2020, 2021, with the various lockdowns with COVID, and that was taken away, right, just to demonstrate how what a critical component of just human interaction that is. The other thing I would just say is really appreciate your your candor on that because I think a lot of times people of faith, especially when they talk to one another, can never you know let on for a second that there is that we ourselves struggle with with our faith or that there are doubts, there are things we question. I mean, I'm I'm at the top of the of the list for all of that, right? And I think mm-hmm. it's it is that 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 doubt and that questioning that just reminds us that we're human, right? And helps us to to dive into scripture and, and dive into fellowship to help reinforce and, and answer some of those questions. So I appreciate your candor. And I think that's a wonderful example for for others to help them understand that grown up in a Christian home and have known that faith for, for your entire life. 
but there's still things you struggle with as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and even, you know, rereading scripture, like something new comes out each time. And like, you know, just the parables of Jesus in particular, even now outside the religious context, like gets to something deep about the human experience in a way that's very relatable and simple that is pretty universal in a lot of these conversations, whether it's about, you know, wealth or Pharisees or living one way or another or trying to perform, like it, it hit, I think the older I get, the more sets and reps you realize, like there's just some fundamental human truths that we have ignored, but that are also ever present that if you can get your head around can actually really increase your own flourishing, your own family's flourishing. And so I'm just intrigued the more I read those those scriptural tenets that like, there's like real truth here and it's it's powerful. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. Ben, I think there's been a, a phenomenal conversation. Wolf in sheep's clothing, Ben Coleman <laughs> was kind enough to to have a really candid conversation with us tonight. Ben, who's who's certainly adult life has has been dedicated to service. I've said this a lot in the past, but but again, greatly appreciate your service to the country, and uh, just really excited to see what you do next. I think kind of your passion for innovation and and your fearlessness for being willing to take on bureaucracy and an established entrenched culture is is really something that I I just admire about you, and uh, really excited to see what you do next. Well, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate you uh, taking the time tonight. Anytime. Thanks again for uh, tuning in, and we will see you next time on Texas Rising. Thank you for listening to another episode of Texas Rising with Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that's it for us this week. And remember, folks, keep on the straight and narrow. Don't mess with Texas. And we'll see you next week on Texas Rising.